My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. I am here. I am a, like I said before, I'm a seminary student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I just completed my first year of that. I am in summer school right now. Uh, really looking forward to continuing this series. We're getting closer to the end of Luke, which means once this is done with Luke, we'll be going into the book of Romans. And then once we're done with Romans, after all 16 chapters of that, we'll be heading back to the very beginning of the Bible, starting with Genesis and just going straight from there. So if there's anything you really would like me to cover while we're doing this, uh, while we're going through these other chapters, please let me know. Just contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. That way... Uh, I can you know, see what my audience is really engaged with, what they want to see me talk about. And they, um, like you know something is coming up in Luke 19. You guys, oh, man, I have, I have to have Christian talk about this. Yeah, let me know. I mean, how else am I going to know if you don't tell me? <laughs> so without any further ado, we're going to get into uh, the book of Luke. We'll be starting in chapter 16. This will be verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, People may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This right here (laughs) is one of those passages outside of uh, the last part there, uh, 10 through 13. You don't really see preached about a lot. And there's a multitude of reasons for why. Uh, I think the main one is because it's weird. (laughs) It uh, feels so initially so out of sync with other parables that Jesus gives. Uh, They're a bit more straightforward. Uh, They have uh, characters you can go, okay, I see their motivations and all this. But this one is tougher. I mean, like, whose side are we supposed to be on at the end, at the end of this? Is Jesus like, is he trying to encourage us to be dishonest at our jobs in order to get ahead at life? Like, those are some honest reactions and questions that come out of reading this passage. But let me, let me help you out here. Because I want to say this is one of those I've had to read time and time again, like fully understand as best as possible. 
First off, guys, this is scripture and it comes from God for our benefit. There's a reason Jesus is saying what he's saying. He's not just speaking for the sake of speaking. The goal for us is to figure out what Jesus means and how we can interpret it correctly and then utilize it in our own lives. So let's look at this. We see our main protagonist here, the manager. He is sinful and he doesn't even attempt to deny that fact when his boss calls him out on it. But but when he uh, uh, but what he does once this has happened, once he's about to lose his job, is he reaches out to those who may be able to help him once he's been fired in order to have made friends who will look upon him favorably once he no longer has a job. So like he brings us people, you owe a master this much uh, or changing the records, you owe this much instead. So by doing that, he's making friends with people. Oh, well, you just lost your job. Well, I mean, you help me out. I'll help you out. That's a very shrewd action. That's why Jesus portrays it. This is not a righteous action. Remember how this started. Because he was being dishonest with the funds and everything that he was supposed to be in control of. Is that a shot at Judas? Who knows? Probably not. Uh, some people have brought that up before. But even at, like I said, this is not a righteous action. He is still a sinful man, this manager. But he's being shrewd about how to take care of himself, which is one of the points Jesus is making here. It is shrewder for the man to use what resources he has before he's forced out of his position to make things easier for himself once he can no longer rely on the things he used to be able to rely on. Like, God expects evil men and women to look after themselves. And so, too, does he desire us to do the same, albeit for different reasons and motivations. God can use the evil actions of men as a way of instructing us on how to act. That's what Jesus is using here, this uh, very different protagonist. Uh, he also uses a very different protagonist later on in this uh, chapter as well to make a point. Like, if we all pursued our ambitions within the kingdom of heaven as well and as shrewd as the people of this world seek after their own sin, then the world would be a far better place. Like, could you imagine if we put this much effort into solving problems, into looking after each other, into making sure our churches were maintained, the people that were being fed, they were being clothed, they were being helped when they're going through anything in their lives. Could you imagine if we were all a little shrewder with the resources we had at hand, what we could do? Like, look, Jesus expects us to do the same, to be shrewd with the people around us, but not out of a sense of pride and self-preservation like the dishonest manager, but out of love and honesty. The dishonest manager is a reprehensible person morally, like Jesus is not defending what he does, but he's helping us use him as an illustration for what we could do in light of what he does in his parable. But at the end, he ends up better than where he started because of his shrewdness. Like he, his boss is like, man, we don't even know if he may even keep him at his job because he's seen what he's done. And the people that he helped out, well, now he has a lot of new friends who don't owe as much money or uh, property or what have you and taxes or or debt to the man's boss. Like, that's a good position to be in. It doesn't matter if this man is sinful or not. It's a good position to be in. So look, look in our own lives. What do we have at our disposal that can help us get ahead in life to the benefit of those around us? Do we have access to money? I've said it before. I have no money. <laughs> but as an example, do we have access to money? Well, good. It can be used for others. Are we friends with a non-believer who donates to charity just so they can have a tax write-off? Like, uh, they're not doing it for the sake of 
doing a good thing. They're doing it because, well, they're going to make, you know, a little more profit off of it if they just, oh, it's a write-off, you know, I'm doing a good thing. Well, use that. Suggest to them a charity that could actually benefit from having that money at their disposal. If you know someone is doing that, well, just send a couple words their way, not to manipulate them, but to use that money for a good cause. If it's already going to be sent away for charity, make sure it's a good one, because there are plenty of charities out there that are not good at what they're supposed to be doing. Look, this, like I said, this isn't using people. It's being wise enough to recognize where God has placed us so that we can help others. Think about what you can do with what responsibilities you have, with what money you have, the time you have, that you can help other people end up better than where you first saw them. But let's also recall that the rich man also asked the steward to give an account of what he'd done. And I add this because some commentators believe this to be a kind of a reflection of God asking the same of us. So in this scenario, like it would be best to be prepared as possible to make that report whenever called upon, lest we end up in trouble with him for failing, falling astray and shirking our duties. Um, I don't know if I'm 100% behind this, but once again, like I want to bring other viewpoints besides my own because that would be very dishonest to you. Uh, I think it's, uh, if I'm being honest, it's shrewder to bring up other viewpoints in that regard. That way it helps you think. Uh, I don't want you just to think what I think because uh, I'm not always right as much as I would like to think so. <laughs> and for the uh, last part of this, excuse me, one of the last parts, I should say, let's also focus on the last things Jesus mentions here, which are that we've all been given something to do by him, no matter how small or how great. The point of whatever tasks and commands that God gives us is to see that we'll be faithful, if we'll be faithful to that particular call. If you and I, if we can't be trusted to do the smaller actions he righteously demands of us, then why would he ever give us something far more important to handle? It's simple. Uh, I've worked with children a lot before, and you give them small tasks, but they don't do that. And then they expect a larger task. They expect, well, I didn't listen to you, but I'm going to eat lunch anyways. It's like, no, you're not eating until you get your stuff done. Like that's simple parenting. Like you cannot reward bad, uh, bad tempers, uh, bad personalities, stuff like that. They have to know there are consequences for not doing the smaller things you ask them to do. Now, obviously, you're not starving the children in this case, but it's something that can be used against them righteously to make them focus on what they should be doing. That's what God does to us every single day when we fail to upkeep the small things he offers us. Imagine the things that are being kept away from us by him because we aren't being faithful enough to handle these smaller things, to, to talk to that person that we happen to see who seems to have a tear in their eye, uh, to... You know, hold the door for someone for just a couple seconds longer. Like, if we can't be trusted to do that, why would he ever trust us? There's something grander that could help a lot more people because we've proven that we can't even do those things. Realize, at the end of the day, no matter what God offers us, we must take care of it and do so well so that when greater things are offered to us, we can then steward those things wisely. And now with the final point, the actual final point this time around of this parable, like Jesus brings us all this uh, very powerful message about how our hearts cannot be divided, 
in seeking after both God and money. Like what? Once again, there is nothing inherently wrong with money, but when it becomes the focus of our hearts and becomes an idol, and it then becomes a master of our thoughts and actions, we have failed to be good stewards of what God has given us. Just like everything else God offers us, he expects us to be shrewd with our money. That means we don't always get that new game that comes out, that new car that just came out. Sometimes we have to buy an older car. We have to wait patiently for that game to go on sale. There's nothing wrong with those with that car. There's nothing wrong with that game. There's nothing wrong with you know going out to eat at a fancy restaurant. But it's not always the shrewdest action to take. So be shrewd with your resources. And with that, we'll go to verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. <laughs> Jesus just can't get more scathing against these people, can he, with his remarks? Like, no wonder they hated him. But number one, because they knew he was right. And number two, because he's got the burns. Like, he directly calls out the Pharisees for what, uh, excuse me, Luke in the gospel directly calls out the Pharisees for what Jesus was just condemning. Like right before they get into their spiel, uh, right before Jesus talks against them, Luke calls them out and says they trusted, they loved money more than anything else. And it's appalling for people in power to turn to money as an idol. It's so easy because of what money can give you. Like <laughs> there's probably a very good reason I've never been above at certain points in my life, middle class. Because I know what I do with my money. I spend it on frivolous things. I have so many books that I haven't read, but that because I have this list of books that I want, I keep buying and buying and buying and buying. Well, imagine if I had more money for that. Well, I'd need space for that. So I'd need to buy a bigger place, all this stuff. It, I can't be trusted with that money right now. But what I can be trusted with is what I do have. So I think that's one of the reasons why God has never allowed me to be in the midst of having that much money, except for temporarily when uh, gifts were given and I was able to use that to pay off some of my seminary bills. But once again, that was being shrewd with money. It wasn't like, okay, thanks for the money, uh, mom. Uh, and then, well, let me go spend it on this. And like, oh no, I wasn't able to afford seminary. Like, no, like you had to be, I had to be able to be trusted with that money. And I think over time I've proven that I could be trusted with that. But at the end of the day, like, there are still tendencies in myself that I see where I can't be trusted with too much more. And I, I admit that to you fully, like it, it just for the sake of transparency. But also the main point here about the pharisaical leaders is that they were using that money to feel security in their lives. They were using it to, as an idol to uh, fund whatever they wanted. Be like, okay, well, I need a new addition to my house. And they would do it. Or I want to import this really great wine from over here that's going to cost this much extra money, and they would do it. The tithes that were offered to the temple were intended, rightfully, to help the priests and Pharisees have an income so that they didn't have to worry about anything other than spending their time in meditation on the Word of God and to then instruct the people about what God had won from them. However, 
They squandered this good gift and depended on it more than they depended on God and completely missed the point of Jesus's early parable. There's a reason we tithe. Part of that is to make sure our pastors, our youth uh, ministers, our uh, worship leaders have money to where they can afford things and they don't have to worry about anything. They know where the money's coming from so that they can prepare for Sunday. They can prepare for Wednesday or when they need to visit someone. It's a lot harder if they have to have a second job on top of being a preacher, on top of being a youth pastor, what have you. But if they have to have that second job, uh, I know someone personally who got burnt out, some of what had happened there. Uh, That was one reason why he got burnt out was because he was focusing on ministry, but also he had to work, you know, nine to five. And that's not healthy to have that much work in your life. It's, I mean, he needed the money because, you know, the church wasn't able to, you know, supply all of his needs at that point in time, but it led to burnout as a result of him having to focus elsewhere. That's not how this is supposed to work. We're supposed to back up each other in this, to offer as much as we can so that there is very little burnout, if at all possible, because we're human, it's going to happen. But with leaders, they need that security. And that's what, one of the reasons why we're told to tithe is to make them secure so that they can focus on leading us to the best of their ability. The Pharisees did the exact opposite. And that's what Jesus is always said about. He's not ever going to tell you, don't send money to church. Don't tithe. That's that's antithetical to what God's message is. But what he will say is hold those people accountable for what they do with their money. If a pastor is being given all the money they could ever want and they're not attending to the needs of their flock, they're worthless. If they're using it to buy uh, expensive you know, jets, private jets, if they're using it to buy these lavish mansions and they don't bring any of that back in good faith to the people around them to enrich the community, to shower the love of God upon them, they're worthless. Now, once again, there's nothing inherently wrong with a private jet. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a mansion. It's what you do with that money that got you there in the first place that becomes an issue. Did you do it so you could have that mansion to be better than everyone else? Or did you do it because, hey, I have this money, I can do it. Why not? And then later on, you also have that money that you can send out because you didn't waste it all on the mansion to help other people. Like it is possible to be rich and a pastor and not be evil with that money. It is possible. It's hard, mind you, but it's possible. So just because someone has wealth doesn't automatically make them the enemy, but it could be a good indicator of where their hearts are if they're serving God and money or attempting to serve God while also serving money. One of the two is going to win out in the end, and there's only one positive result, and it's serving God instead of the money. Also, we see here in these very few verses, like Jesus is declaring a partial end to the law God had offered beforehand. Like we'll get into this a little more when we start reading Romans, uh, but for the sake of having a conversation about it, not to just leave you in the dark, uh, the law is something that no longer applies to Christians in full uh, like it did to the Jewish people. Jesus did not, however, destroy the full law. So some of it still applies to us. I know that's all over the place. It makes sense in context. I'll do my best to summarize it. And hopefully when we get to Romans, I'll go into more detail. The law was split into three categories. You have the moral law, the civil law, and the priestly slash ceremonial laws. The moral law governs what is right and wrong. 
So you got your no stealing, no murdering, no adultery, what have you. The civil law was designed to govern the nation of Israel with commands that only applied to them at that time in history and would consist of things like, you know, don't get tattoos or, you know, you can only uh, yoke your oxen like this. Like a more modern example to us that we can to help you understand would be speed limits. Like there are civil laws set by the country, set by, set by the state. We have to follow those if we don't want to get pulled over, I say, as someone with a very uh, heavy lead foot. Now, the last one, uh, the priestly ceremonial laws, and they pertain to how God needed to be worshipped. So these involve sacrifices and incense and the specific ways that ceremonies had to be done and the like. They no longer apply. Civil laws, ceremonial laws no longer apply to you and I. The moral law is the one we need to concern ourselves with. As Jesus will later go into divorce in the next verse after we're done with this part, when we get to that verse. So the point being... And all this, it's like Jesus is doing away with parts of the law. But why would he do so? Why give that law in the first place if he's going to get rid of it later on? Well, the entire purpose of the law was to show the Jewish people that even if they kept the whole law, they still wouldn't be righteous enough to save themselves from God's wrath. It's humanly impossible for someone to keep the entire law. There's like 600 and some, like 13 or something like that, laws in scripture that pertain to these three subsections here. And there's not a single person alive who could have kept everyone. Because even if they did, there are things that we see like uh, if you wanted to love your neighbor as yourself, but the law also allowed someone to own slaves. How do those two correlate? Well, to keep the whole law, there's a contradiction there. Because if you want to treat your neighbor as yourself, you can't have a slave. So what was the point of having something like that? Well, the point being, and we'll get into more depth later, but just for the sake of brevity here, is that God was saying, you can't keep this whole law. You can't even do it. Even if you did, you'd be breaking it. Because owning another life is never right. Even though at the time, what God was intending with that law was for them to treat their slaves a lot better than the people around them to show them how everyone should be treated, how they should be loved and respected. And the slaves were supposed to be freed after certain years. Once again, not a perfect system. It wasn't designed to be a perfect system because it was a civil law. It was a ceremonial law. It wasn't a moral law. All I have to say, the whole point is that they could never keep it. And we get into one that a lot of people haven't been able to keep. And a lot of Christians have done a really bad, uh, have had a really, uh, what's what I want to look for here, uh, bad presentation about how they've seen this particular sin. And we're going to verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So what we see here, marriage is supposed to be this everlasting bond that does not end. It goes on uh, until one spouse dies. And someone can choose to remarry after that without worries of adultery. But people being people, we corrupt what God has made, this perfect and holy thing that he's designed in the form of marriage between this man and this woman. And they preferred it and do their own thing. But the church hasn't been very good in how we've handled it. In fact, there has been a ton of evil done to men and women in the church on the basis of their being divorced or while they're in the process of being divorced. We like, look, divorce is not, is a sin, like plain and simple. It is a sin. It's not something that should have happened, but people are people. It's going to happen. 
And it's not suddenly something that should make anyone a pariah. That we didn't look and say, well, you're not fit to do anything in this church. You need to go elsewhere. How many churches have started because of something like that? More than zero, which is what it should be. Look, and even worse, in some cases, like because of societal pressure, couples have stayed together, preferring to live in mutual hatred of one another rather than being ostracized for divorcing. It's allowed abusive relationships to thrive because of fear and shame. It's allowed children to have a very poor view of marriage because they see the way their father and mother hate and despise each other. Like, why would I ever want that for myself? If that's what marriage is, I don't want any of it. It's ruined everything because we've gotten legalistic with how we've handled what Jesus is is saying here. Once again, like this divorce is a sin, but none of this is what God intended to happen with marriage. But because humans are sinful beings and corrupt everything we touch, we ruin something perfect and holy. This was why the law allowed for divorces. This would be an example of a civil law in Israel. You could divorce from your spouse. Uh, Some people went to extreme reasons, said, well, if she overcooked your dinner or if you found a prettier woman, you could divorce her. Those things happen, unfortunately. But... Jesus makes it clear that even when this was allowed by the law, it was sinful. Like I said before, marriage is meant to last forever as an ideal. Ideals, however, fail to live up to human depravity. Like uh, if you if you're in an audience right now and like you've gone through a divorce, uh, you're going through one right now. Like, look, uh, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to say that you are less than anyone else in this audience right now. Uh, I don't know the circumstances. There are even Jesus allows divorce in certain areas for when there is sexual immorality in marriage, or if uh, the husband is not loving his wife like he should be. Like, look, and vice versa. It's going to happen. People are people. That's where it's at. You are not less than. You are not worthless because you've gone through this particular moment of your life. Never let anyone tell you that. You are never meant to be cast out for this action from the church. Any church that turns its back on a divorced couple or favors one spouse over the other is worthless. Look, like I said before, divorce is a sin like any other. And that is something we must take up to God just like every other time we turn away from what he desires. There is always forgiveness for sin and you are not less than simply because of choices that you made in the past, your spouse made in the past that has spiraled out of control to the point of having irreconcilable differences. Jesus' point here isn't to make divorce some extra special sin that only really bad people do. It's like, no, it's to reveal the weaknesses of the law and to show that the Pharisees, they divorced God a long time ago and have lived in spiritual adultery ever since they've left their first love. So all that to say, like, look, you're still loved. And if your church has gotten rid of you for something like that, they weren't worth your time. Find somewhere where you can be loved. You can still be reprimanded in love for actions where we can find people who love one another and are willing to speak our sins out against, uh, to each other, sorry, not against each other, (laughs) to one another in fulfillment of having a community that looks after one another and doesn't say, oh, you've done this, well, you're no longer allowed here. That's not how it works outside of prison sentences. So if you've done something like that, yeah, sure. I probably don't deserve to be in a church. So we'll uh, continue today by finishing up in verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your life received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and, may, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I want to start with an alternate viewpoint here that I had never encountered before. Because I've always just seen this as a parable while doing research for this. Go, oh, uh, some people actually interpret this as an actual event that happened within history. I, I was blown away by that information. Um, I never once heard it preached that way. So I wasn't exactly sure how to handle it. And they treat it like an actual story that Jesus is relaying to give us as an example. Uh, like Jesus has used those before to give examples like uh, the people that died uh, in the tower crash uh, fall and stuff like that. So there's precedence for this. Like other reasons given are that unlike other parables, Jesus offers a name for one of the characters within. We don't learn uh, the Good Samaritan's name. We don't learn the prodigal son's name. So the fact that Jesus is bringing a name in their viewpoint means, oh, well, maybe this actually legitimately happened. That's possible. There are huge ramifications if that is true in how uh, what hell looks like and the like. Let us continue. And. Like the fact that Jesus would have known this event happened, given, you know, he is God and would have watched this unfold. Like I, I would say at the end of the day, I prefer interpreting it as a parable. But like I said before, like I'd be doing you all a huge disservice if I didn't mention this opposing viewpoint for you to consider on your own. I never want to be. I'll say this again. I, I think I've used again so many times in this uh, recording. Like I will say it. You don't have to 100 percent align with where I'm at and how I'm interpreting what I'm saying. I want you to look into this book and see how, what does God say about this? How can he help me understand this? If I can be a resource in that regard, excellent. But I'm not the only one. There are far wiser and smarter people out there. You can also seek them out too. But I do think I have something to say, and that's why I say it. But just because it comes out of my mouth doesn't make it true. Let's go back to the parable in question, if this is indeed a parable. We see a massive contrast in Lazarus's righteousness in the midst of poverty and the rich man's sinfulness in the midst of abundance. Like it doesn't really particularly mention Lazarus's, you know, going to the temple and worshiping God. But the fact that he's brought up into heaven tells me he was a believer, a true one. But what we see is that even in the bit, midst of abundance, a rich man's sinfulness, <laughs> he had everything and he refused to turn to God. The money didn't save the rich man from hell and Lazarus's piety didn't save him from the troubles of this world. That is a very sobering message no one wants to hear. We always want to hear those stories of, well, you know, God, I came to faith and he blessed me with this money and a car, a wife and children, all these wonderful things. Like, yeah, that's a great 
that fairy tale that he, God could do that, but we know how the world works. We know that no matter where we end up in life, no matter what riches we gain, the people we love, like we're going to screw up. People around us are going to screw up. They're going to sin against us. We're going to sin against them. We know that. It's a lot neater in a story to focus on the good things, but it's a lot more of a reality check to see things in light of how God views it. Like sometimes bad things happen to really good people. No one likes that. You shouldn't like that. You don't have to like that, but it's reality. Yet at the end, Lazarus is raised up in glory for eternity, having suffered, relatively speaking, for a short amount of time compared to literal eternity. One of Jesus's points here is that this world is unjust, not unjust in a way that God is unjust and not punishing us for our sins, but in the actual legitimate unjust, bad things happen sometimes to people who don't deserve it. But God will raise in eternity those who persevere despite the evils of this world. That should make everyone who is listening right now, if you have Jesus, uh, very excited because it's all worth something. That's not why we do it, but it's one of the greatest perks of all time is escaping the evils of this world and the fires of hell. You also see here a very uh, anti-Charles Dickens viewpoint in this passage uh, to my Christmas Carol fans out there. Jesus uh, through the character of Abraham, gives us the message that even if someone were to come back from the dead, a la Jesus eventually, and Jacob Marley, then the lost and Ebenezer Scrooge still wouldn't come to faith in the truth of God's love. Now, Christopher Carroll, love it. Has seen many interpretations. you got the Mickey Christopher Carroll, you've got Muppet Christmas Carroll, so on and so forth. Excellent, great story, a very heart- heartwarming story of redemption. But Jesus is actually speaking against that idea. And that even if Jacob Marley were to come back, even if Jesus came back and talked to the Pharisees directly after being killed on the cross and then coming back to life, they are simply people out there who will never repent of their sins. And even when they recognize their loss, they still don't ask for repentance. That is a very sobering thought. It is a very unhappy thought. I don't like it. Once again, as someone who is very much not a universalist, the fact that there are people who are going to remain in hell in the lake of fire for all eternity is not something I'm particularly happy about. I want them to come to faith. I want them to see the truth. But God honors their choices and decisions. And if they choose not to remain with him, but why would he ever want them in his presence? Unlike people who've recognized our weakness and our failings and come to him in brokenness and repentance and say, God, make me better than myself. I believe in you. Like, which of those two would you like to spend eternity with? I'm guessing it's the one who recognized who they were and then did something about it versus someone who lived like life, excuse me, literally like hell, and then somehow ended up in heaven with no repercussions whatsoever. That's, that's its own thing. That's not the focus of this talk, but I wanted to bring it up. I, but notice here that the rich man doesn't even ask for deliverance from hell, which he could possibly do. I'm not sure exactly how that works. Uh, metaphysically, but like he doesn't even ask it. Instead, he demands that Lazarus serve him even in death, as he feels that he's more deserving of that control over this poor man who has been ascended and is now higher than him. Like, can you not see the the sheer gall, uh, the the hubris to to do something like this? It's astounding. And yet that's how people are going to end up along the way. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve because I'm me. And at the end, the department from me, I never knew you, is what they're going to hear. Like, but 
we also see a very humanizing moment for this man. Jesus doesn't make him one-dimensional. He has a moment of sympathy for his family, for his brothers. But even this is not enough for him to beg forgiveness. He's thinking, oh, we'll just warn them instead. He knows they've heard the same things he has. He knows that. But he thinks, oh, well, maybe if I just get out of hell for a little bit or Lazarus does it for me, like then that'll get me out of here or something like that or what have you, instead of actually doing what he's supposed to be doing and repenting of his sins. There are no workarounds. The way to truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, means there's only one way to that, and that's saying yes to Jesus and no to myself. This man, this rich man cannot say no to himself. And even after all that, he sees them merely as extensions of himself, really. So I mean, if they make it, maybe he gets brought into heaven. Uh, that's some deluded uh, logic, but I mean, it's better in his mind than actually saying I was wrong. Like he also once again demands that Lazarus do his dirty work for him <laughs> rather than going himself, because then he would have to admit he was wrong for sinning against God if he was taken out of hell momentarily to warn his brothers. Like even in the midst of punishment, he still doesn't ask to be taken out of it. He just asks for momentary relief. Versus a permanent solution that would mean he had to give up who he is to die to his old self and become a new creation. Like, despite all this, even with his concern, it's too late. He had his entire life to do this, but never did because it meant he had to give up control. And there are plenty of people out there, some of whom we know, that we've attempted to bring the gospel to them. We've attempted to show God's love to them, and it falls on deaf ears. Guess what? You're not alone. Because it happened to Jesus too. His words are going to fall on deaf ears, even though he conquered death and established his kingdom on the earth. This is this parable, uh, or possible historical event, is not a satisfying story with a sinner who comes to faith and repents, but it is a promise of justice being delivered to someone who squandered their life and has met their just deserts in hell. We should take no pleasure from this. And certainly should never wish hell upon another person. But there is punishment for sins, and there is no escape from it. I mean, you could argue all day, is it possible for someone suffering in hell to eventually come to the point of repentance? I mean, I, I hope that's true. I don't think it is, because they've already made their decisions, and they're going to stick by them for eternity, even to their own detriment. So that's where we're at. Another cheery note to leave on. <laughs> So uh, thank you for listening today, guys. I really appreciate all the feedback, all the everything you continue to do to share the show, uh, bring it to more people. Uh, please, if you have a moment of your time, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice to help bump the show. Uh, if you're interested in reading any of my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwriterskill.com. You can also find it on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. It's probably not going to be the first result because I'm not that popular yet, and that's okay. I can admit that in humbleness. If you're all interested in some further follow, uh, follow, solid studies <laughs> into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. Contact us at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd also like to sp- extend as well a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.